0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: In spite of all our communication technology, no invention is as effective as the sound of the human voice. When we hear the human voice, we instinctively want to listen in the hopes of understanding it. Even when the speaker is searching for the right words to say, that's because the human voice resonates differently from everything else in the world. This is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Listen in on candid conversations with creative entrepreneurs and insanely interesting people.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter-shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, Susan Hyatt talks to me all about her mission to make personal development fun and the importance of developing your own belief system. Here, Susan, thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
3: Hey, I am so glad I passed the Melissa test, <laughs> and I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a fan yeah. of your
0: work. I'm going to ask you the first question that you ask everybody, which is, uh, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your story, your background, and how that has brought you to doing uh, the work that you're doing today?
3: Yeah, sure, absolutely. I am um, a master life coach and an author, and I basically am committed. 2014 is kind of my year to... To expand the sassiest place to find life change and personal development. So my mission is really to make personal development fun. Um, And the way that I got into this work, I've been doing this about seven years. And um, prior to that, I worked in marketing and public relations. And then um, I was actually a stay-at-home mom for a couple of years. I have two kids that are 15 and 13. Um, my 15-year-old Ryan, I, I'm going to have to start paying him royalties because he gives me so much material. I'm raising Ferris Bueller is basically how this is working out for me. Um, but I stayed at home for a few years, and then I went into the workforce as a residential real estate agent. And it, I look back on that now, and I'm so grateful for my time um, as, a, as a real estate agent because – It taught me a number of things about business. First of all, I was very successful at it and hated it. Uh, So I am living proof that you can be really, really good at something, but you might not have any business doing it. And while I was in real estate, I um, became a self-help addict because I was trying to figure out why am I so... um, unhappy when I have everything that I thought I really wanted. I had a thriving career. I had a good marriage. I had these two beautiful kids. And if you were looking from the outside in, you would have suspected that everything was just peachy. But what was happening was that I was really dying on the vine and had, um, golden handcuffs, so to speak. So I went on this quest to figure out what the hell (laughs) I would do about this. And, um, was led to the work of Dr. Martha Beck, who ultimately ended up training me as a life coach. And her book, um, I don't know if you've read it. Have you read Finding Your Own North Star? Fantastic. Oh, awesome. it, well, let me tell you, I'm convinced it's the best self-help book ever written. Completely changed my life. But at any rate, I... Um, decided because I made such positive changes in my life based on her work, I um, became trained as a coach and never looked back. And so um, what real estate taught me about business, I brought into building my coaching practice. And um, it has been an interesting journey as an entrepreneur, first working for myself, selling houses, and now working for myself, um, helping people change their lives. So that's that's how I got here.
0: Cool. All right. Well, that gives us uh, a ton of stuff to work with. But you know, I want to go back to the very beginning of something you said. You know, you you kind of I, I nailed it down to having sort of this mission of making personal mm-hmm. development fun, and mm-hmm. I think that the, this sense of mission or purpose. Um, when I you know often what I found is one of the common threads between people who are really really successful are just happy with what they're doing is they have a sense of clarity around mission and purpose, but mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's the – I don't think you can just sit down one day and say, okay, this is my purpose and this is my mission. It seems like sort of an evolutionary and discovery process. And I'm curious, you know, as you kind of guide people through that, I mean, how do you figure that out?
3: Oh, how do I figure out my mission? Yeah. and, and how do
0: other people do it?
3: Well, I think you're right. It, it's not – I think a lot of people come come into personal development and they – you know, want things to happen very quickly. And there's certainly a ma- an amount of experience that has to happen organically for people to figure it out. And so for me, when I'm working with clients to help them figure out, you know, what's your mission? Um, oftentimes when I ask people, you know, what is it that makes you happy? What lights you up? What are you on fire about? I get this deer in the headlights look and (laughs) they're like, what do you mean? Um, You know, they might be really good at getting stuff done. They might be making a lot of money, but they have no idea really what lights their fire. And so I think the first step in figuring out what your mission is, is figuring out who you are and figuring out what it is that really, ignites you in some way and and so part of that process is starting to pay attention to you know what irritates the crap out of you what enrages you what um gets you so excited that you can't stop talking about it and for probably 90 percent of the people i work with they can't really answer those questions yet
0: I think that you know, it's, it's funny you bring up answering those questions. In my mind, half of answering those questions is just trying a bunch of different things. Uh, mm-hmm. it just, it, it's amazing. It, I, yeah, think about how little people want to, people don't want things to be imperfect or messy, but I feel like this process is incredibly messy. Uh, uh-huh. it just it's, it's like, you know, finger paints all over a canvas with, you know, no sense of what, what you're creating. And eventually you kind of make order out of anarchy. And, and I love that you, you know, find what enrages you. Cause even, you know, my business partner, Greg Hartle, he'll often say, he's like, find something that pisses you off and fix it. And that's yep. often a great starting point.
3: Yeah. And I love what you said about the messy because, um, You know, I am all about embracing the messy. Um, I I told you before we started the recording, I'm originally from Savannah, Georgia. And I don't know, have you spent much time in the South? A little bit. A little bit. Okay. Do you know when I say, have you seen Moss? Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: I have no idea.
3: Okay. Okay. So down in the South. There's this beautiful, it's actually a plant that grows on trees called moss. And it's gray, and it's drapey, and it hangs off the trees, and it's very romantic and beautiful. And a lot of times when tourists come to town, you'll see them with hefty bags trying to bag up this moss and take it home. But what's funny about the moss is that it's actually infested with red bugs. Like these tiny little chiggers that if you get it on your skin, it it you're going to itch for days. And so when I was growing up in Savannah and would be downtown and see people bagging that stuff up, I would always stop them and say, whoa, 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 you, you don't want to take that home. It's full of bugs. And so when I talk about the messy of life, I talk about the mossy and the glossy. So, you know, here you have this beautiful oak tree with this seemingly beautiful moss, but there's something underneath that. And I think with personal development, the most fun is when I can help people own both. You know, we're you know, we're never going to have a perfect life. So why strive for that? But strive to be somebody who's willing to take risks, who's willing to swim around in the messiness of it and own those parts of yourself. Um, So, yeah, the mess is where it's at. That's where the money is.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that. Um, like, I can't. Remember, I think it was somebody, Meg Warden, maybe told me. She like, you know, your mess can become your message as long as it's in service of other people. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, a lot of that is sharing a journey of growth. And I think that that's that's what I've seen with so many wildly successful people. that they often just share the journey of their own growth. Um, but you know, I, I think that ego is an interesting thing when it comes to this as well. Because it, you know, when we're in school and and as we're we're kind of taught through our education system, like we don't really, we're not taught to embrace the mess. We're taught to be perfect. We're taught not to make mistakes um, and we're punished for, for our mistakes or, or things that don't go, go right. You know, I mean, there's such a negative connotation to failure. And I guess, you know, sort of where, where I would go with that question wise is, is how do you escape that stigma that's associated with failure?
3: Oh gosh, that's such a good question because you're right. I mean, um, it took me a long time and a lot of work to be willing to risk the ego, which by the way, I think being willing to risk your ego is the number one indicator of success in business um, because what I have found is over the years, the more I tried to Appear like I had everything together, it was so limiting to me. Um, And so I typically um, have a little system for myself that. I, (laughs) when I notice that I am scared to reveal something, then I know I have to out myself and I know I have to write about it. And, um, and so what I do is I just pay attention to things that, that either I'm completely sucking at that maybe I wouldn't want people to know or negative thoughts I'm having or judgments I'm making. And I figure out how to get over it and create a tool to help others to get over it. And so one of the things that I, one of the practices that I actually have now is I'm constantly looking to sign up for things or engage in things. Like when you were talking about people need to just try a bunch of different stuff. Um, I make that a big practice of my life, especially if I'm afraid I'm going to be bad at it because I spent so much time trying to be good at everything. And so one of the things that I'm engaging in regularly right now is CrossFit, (laughs) which I don't know if you know anything about CrossFit, but it's not for the faint of heart. And I'm not necessarily the typical candidate for CrossFit, but I'm, I'm loving it and I'm sucking at it and I'm blogging about it pretty regularly.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I I love this because it kind of just makes me think of, of, you know, just the threads in in, uh, Pam Slim's recent work, the whole idea of a body of work. And Mm -hmm. I think that we are so sort of like, you know, we've talked endlessly about, you know, find your niche and do your one thing. And in my mind, that becomes very limiting and kind of pigeonholes us. And I I finally kind of said, you know, I I said the other day, I said, you know, you really, uh, Danny Shapiro says, I hate the word platform. And I'm realizing that that was like music to my ears. And I was like, it's true. It's not a platform. It's a canvas and we're all artists and we can create whatever we want on that canvas. And I think we have to be willing to do that in order to really find a lot of these things. Like I, to me, it's like, that's how you find the thread that ties everything together. It's like, I'm not going to forever be defined as the interview guy. Like, I don't want this one thing to be my identity.
3: Right. I'm with you. I mean, I'm I'm definitely, I understand that the more focused we are and the more we can become known for something, that's great marketing. However, I think it's much more interesting what you just said, um, that we're constantly allowing ourselves to evolve and try different things. And, and for me and for the work I do with my clients, for sure. There's so much that we don't know yet. And that's what's so exciting. And we're never going to know it unless we risk our egos and try something else. So I'm with you.
0: Yeah. I mean, even if you one of the you know, I've been listening to this show called Off Camera, uh, which is this guy, Sam Jones, he interviews like all these celebrities like Judd Apatow, uh, Amy Mann, like really interesting people. And one of the threads I keep coming back to is that nobody gets defined by one art form. Like they, they have their one thing that they're known for, but they're constantly exploring other art forms. I mean, even Robert Downey Jr., one of my favorite quotes from his interview was that he said, you know, as an artist, anything you take an interest in will benefit you.
3: Mm. Mm-hmm. I love him. And yes, that <laughs> that's uh, that's a great quote. And it's so true because- I mean, who would have thought? I'm constantly giggling about the stuff that I'm bringing into my work that's making it so much more interesting. But I'm like, who would have thought that CrossFit would teach me so much about business? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, who would have thought that I'd be, you know, interested in writing a book about how sex might improve your bottom line? Um, You know, it, it just... I think we limit ourselves too much when we take popular business advice too stringently.
0: Oh, yeah. They, well, you hit you just hit one of my hot buttons. We could talk about that for like two hours.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Good.
0: Um, okay. So, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, this actually makes a perfect transition to what I want to talk about next. I mean, so you're a, a certified life coach. And, you know, I, I recently wrote this uh, lengthy update called The Mimicry Epidemic on uh, Facebook. And one of the things I often see with life coaches, and my guess is you probably see this with your clients, that they come to you and what you suddenly find is they want to become you. Yeah. And I am really curious how we deal with this because it, mm-hmm. like, I think that that's what ends up giving life coaches the, the, the sort of connotation. You may have seen the John Stewart and De, uh, Dimitri Martin sketch they did about it. Um, Hilarious. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so the thing is that what I am really kind of curious about is how you get people to break out of that. Like the thing is people will hire somebody and then they, they you know, in their mind, their ambition becomes I want to become that person. And, I, you know, we, we made a very distinctive choice when we sat down to say what products and services are we going to create. And mm-hmm. we said, you know what, we're never going to create anything that allows people to replicate what we do because that would just piss away their talents. Because yes. we're not interested in turning them into replicas of us. Yes. And I'm wondering how you, as, as somebody who is, is, you know, in a field that is notorious for people who want to become you, like deal mm-hmm. with that.
3: Yeah, you know, it this is this is something that I've had to deal with quite a bit um over the years and especially lately. And um you know the copycattery thing, that's what I call it, is rampant. You're right. And and I think what happens is that um people discount their own creative juice. So they, sometimes they're doing it intentionally and sometimes they're not doing it intentionally. But, but what's happening is, is that they're not tuning into their own ideas and their own brilliance and, and they see something else maybe that you're doing or someone else is doing and they try to just pick up that package and I'm using package in quotes and, plop that down on their website, expecting the same kind of results. And of course it never works that way because the energy that you have that goes into your show um, and the brilliance that you have can never be replicated. They might try to, but it's some weird rendition of it. Um, I actually had a, a situation probably about three, four years ago where a coach in the Chicago area actually lifted my entire website and just changed the the headshot to hers and the business name to hers. but every single thing else, including like the about me stuff, was mine wow. uh, and and that was an extreme case where you know she immediately took it down once. I notified her that she needed to take it down. But the way that when I'm working with coaches, the thing that I try to help them do is I call it flying your own freak flag. So the thing that clients are going to be attracted to is that mossy and glossy balance that I mentioned earlier. And that's very unique to the coach. So, you know, if you're looking at, say um, Pam slim and you're going to try to to replicate an escape from cubicle nation kind of business you better make darn sure that you're infusing that with your own experience and your own stuff and and so there's a lot of again paying attention to all those things like what are what are your hobbies what let's talk about your voice let's talk about your perspective and your philosophy on this and i think a lot of that is jumped over with life coaches they don't ever stop to consider what their philosophy might be. They just take whoever they trained with and sort of mimic that belief system where I think it's much more interesting when a coach takes it and builds on it and says, okay, well then here's my philosophy on all this.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I love this. And this is, you know, again, one of my sort of hot buttons right now, because I mean, the sheer volume of very distinctive talent within our community blows my mind. And I'm like, I just, I would never want to see that wasted right. on somebody trying to replicate what we do or even replicate what people on our show do. I'm like, you know, like, I guess the way I would sum it up is that, you know, all the advice you get here is ingredients and the recipe is yours.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. Perfect. Brilliant. And that's kind of how I look at train. I have a training for coaches. it's a it's a business training called clear coaches and i I stress all of this stuff a lot and I like the way that you just wrap that up. Like this is just all ingredients and you cook up your own recipe. like your blend. As a coach, your blend has to be unique to your own life story, your own experience, your own perspective, and all of that is so valuable to the world. So much more valuable than trying to slickly package up something that you think will sell fast.
0: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, we'll, we'll get into kind of packaging products, services, and all that stuff uh, a little later. But um, so let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and uh, let's start talking about some of the earlier parts of your career. You know, you mentioned that you had worked in marketing and PR. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd love to dig into that and talk about kind of how that's influenced and shaped what you do today. And and of course, I mean, marketing and PR has evolved so much in the last three to four years. Like, I mean, the things that, you know, we started off talking about Melissa Casera, who really to me is is just a PR mainstream media whiz. And, you know, I mean, it's like the entire thing, you know, I was sitting with a marketing professor from business school last night and we were talking about the fact that their entire curriculum is outdated. And yeah. they can't figure out how to get students to thrive in this world. So I'm really curious, you know, what, you know, kind of lessons from the past that are sort of timeless and still relevant and kind of how it's all evolved.
3: Yeah, I, I often joke when I teach um, marketing and business classes for coaches that, you know, my marketing and PR background, um, my first internship um, in college I actually was a political science major and intended to go on to law school and in my senior year I interned in DC for a public relations firm that um, was female owned and had all government clients and I decided I really liked the creative side much more than I expected and I and I decided to stick with that and so they hired me full-time right out of college and um, <clears throat> and what was interesting, what my joke is, is that almost, almost everything I learned does not apply. Um, you know, it's coaches will make the assumption, well, Oh, you have a marketing and PR background. So therefore that's why you're successful. And I can never, (laughs) I can never be successful because I don't have that background. And that's certainly not true, but some of the, the timeless lessons are, just understanding how to take information and position it in a way that's easily digestible for people. So being able to, um, you know, things like writing press releases and all that kind of stuff doesn't doesn't really um, happen in my daily life anymore. But what I did learn was to understand having a consistent brand and what that looks like and how to talk about things in a way that makes sense.
0: All right. So let's dig deeper into this, uh, this whole idea of a consistent brand and talking about things in a way that makes sense. I mean, I, I think people will hear you say that. This idea of a consistent brand is something that's come up quite a bit over the last few uh, months on this show, and mm-hmm. not, maybe it's partially because we're, you know, we've, we've just been going through our own rebranding. But, mm-hmm. I mean, h- one, how do you define a consistent brand, and then, of course, how do you, you know, articulate that in the way you come across uh, when you're communicating with people?
3: Yeah, so to me, a consistent brand is more about – I'm more concerned, and I don't even want to use the word concerned, but I'm more impressed with branding when – it helps me feel a certain way where I can almost taste the flavor of that person's energy, so to speak. So, so the, let's say if you're looking at their website, the photography, the language that they're using, the colors that they're using, um, you know, the look, tone and feel of it matches. And I don't know if you've ever visited, for example, I'm sure you have websites where Everything aesthetically looked good. You know, it was very professionally done, but it just felt like there was no there there. Like, where are they? It doesn't, you know, it's all very beautifully designed, but it didn't necessarily match the personality of that company or that person. And so when I'm talking about consistent branding, I'm more interested in, does it match? Does it match what they say they want to help you do? Does it match their personality? Um, can I get a feel for what's happening here, and can I clearly understand what it is they do and how I can engage with them?
0: Yeah, I love that, and I love that you talked about you know this idea of how it makes you feel and I, I remember as we were going through the design process for the unmistakable creative website, you know the first batch you know the first version, I was showing it, and I was like you can't have a website called the unmistakable creative and use stock photography. That's like just an oxymoron. <laughs> I was like, right. That was the first piece of feedback I, I gave when I got the first version. And I was like, okay, you know what? Let's, let's go to our friend Mars Dorian. And we went to him and the first versions of sketches that came back, we sat down, we talked with him and your exact comment was what we told him. We said, dude, every time you like, anytime he sends us something, I'm like, this is delightful. It overwhelms me with joy. I'm like, you just dazzle me every single time. And this time you didn't do it. And I said, All right. I'm like, So basically, go back to the drawing board and come back and dazzle me. I was like, I realize those are horribly vague instructions, and you should kill me for saying that. But <laughs> that, I mean, uh, that to me was, and he, he said, He's like, I get it. He's like, You guys, we told them, we're like, That logo has to scream unmistakable, and it has to make people feel something when they come mm-hmm. to the site. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, that's, that's not an easy thing to accomplish, but I think that if you stick to your guns on that, it's, it's, it's really, really mind blowing what that does. Once you start getting clarity on how you want people to feel in your world, yes. um, to steal Nisha Moodley's words. <laughs>
3: yeah. 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 I mean, that's really, to me, what it's all about. It, you know, I'm less concerned with all the bells and whistles and I'm much more concerned with, does it evoke emotion and can i really do i feel like people want to feel and so can they feel you and when people hand off projects like if you had just handed that off and taken the first rendition of it with the stock photography stock photography and people went to that site they would have been like They wouldn't have been able to put their finger on what was missing, but your input was missing. Your soul was missing from that, and um, and now it won't be. And that I think that is where I'm concerned with branding much more so than did you use the same logo every single time and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, I really the way I think of it is really as as, uh, either you know what Justine Musk calls a soul print, or you know what I, I basically have boiled down to to being called an artistic signature. Mm-hmm. Where you kind of you can look at it and you're like, okay, that that has Srini written all over it, or that has Susan written all over it.
3: Mm-hmm. Ooh, I like that. I'm gonna quote you in my class today. Artistic signature.
0: Well, you should quote Justine Musk, because she it, that was inspired by her. But uh, yeah, so and she calls it a soul print, and we called it an artistic signature, because we're like, soul print sounds vague. People won't understand that on our sales yeah. page. Uh, yeah. So which actually makes a perfect transition to my next question. And you had talked about uh, you know, an endless supply of material and your son you know, uh, having to charge your son royalties, because you're raising a little Ferris Bueller, which I love. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite movies from the 80s. And I, I tried to convince numerous friends in college that we needed a day like that in San Francisco, and none of them ever took me up on it it. So I think that was their, that was their loss. But uh, that actually, you know, I think that the, the question that comes from that for me, you know, since we're talking about artistic signature and, and all this creative part, is looking at our own lives for material um, and, and how we sort of survey our lives for, for this kind of material and, and, and bring it in and, and then really translate it into our content, our messaging, our branding, and our, our mission.
3: Right. I think it's so important. And I think that people are really hungry for connection and the fastest way for two human beings to connect is to, to tell a real story. Um, and so something that I'm very passionate about is sharing what's happening in my real life. So as a parent, there's so much material happening in my own life with my kids and my husband and my dogs. And, and if we're paying attention and we're open to it, it's not just about sharing any kind of story. It's, it's looking at the material that's happening around you all day long. And how can you use that to help other people? Um, and so there's just, I think back to the copycat questioning earlier i think if if business owners can really take the time to do that and keep a little notebook and jot down just a few words about you know oh the story about getting my tires rotated or oh the story about the beagle getting loose or whatever if they can pay attention and take stock in what's happening around them in their own lives, there's an endless supply of inspiration and motivation for others.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually, I think my, my morning update today summed it up. The way I summed it, I said, you know what? Think of it this way. You know, your, your life experience is your paintbrush and the page is your canvas.
3: Mm, you're so articulate. I'm loving <laughs> it. I'm going to be quoting you all day. Yes, that's brilliant.
0: I think that that just, to me, that's what, you know, when somebody says, what do I write about? I said, you know, you have a life, right? Like it's funny. And I say often, I don't know where I'm going to start, but I just look at it and say, you know what I li- I had yesterday, I experienced yesterday, something happened yesterday that might have some inspiration or lessons in it.
3: Yeah. And you know, <clears throat> I really feel like hundreds of times a day, there are messages coming to us through our lives and it, and if we're just open to it, some of the time, I just feel overwhelmed by the amount of inspiration and to the point that I have just notebooks full of ideas and and I will come back to them and whatever's supposed to live off the page will. But it's it's just all about paying attention and 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 giving credit to your life. I, I think a lot of time people will look at authors that they respect or bloggers and, and say, Um, Oh, well, my whatever, my life isn't as sensational or as newsworthy as Martha Beck's, for example. And, you know, that's just not true. Everyday stories can help change everything for people.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost
3: 50 pounds.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Totally. I mean, I think we, 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 you know, social media creates this sort of sense of envy, right? Like everybody's life looks sensational online.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right.
0: So, well, speaking of which I think that, that let, let's do this. I want to start talking a little bit about um, real estate and then I want to start getting into some tactical stuff. So, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, we're talking about life looking sensational. You said, you know, from the outside, your life looks so perfect and you were successful, but you realized you hated doing what you were doing. And I think that that takes, that's sort of like a a real wake up call. And, and what I say is people are sleepwalking through life. How do you find, like, how do you become aware that maybe you're at that point? Like, how do you recognize that, Hey, I'm living a life that I don't want to be living?
3: Well, I mean, (laughs) for me, the, when I would open my eyes in the morning, I would hit the snooze button 10 times. I didn't want to get out of bed. And so a lot of folks, it's like, you know, reluctance to get your day started, um, feeling like you're constantly just white knuckling it or powering through the day. And then when you power through the day, um, having absolutely no interest or desire in doing anything else but putting on your pajamas and sitting in front of Netflix. I mean, to me, that... Those were all big red flags for me in my life that I was kind of sleepwalking through it. So for clients, I mean, when they can't say what they do for fun, when they can't say what they're interested in, if they're not excited or passionate about the work that they're doing, um, then that's a problem. And, and also, you know, are they exhausted? Are they overeating? Are they um, overspending? There's so many behaviors that, that happen when people are unhappy with what's going on in their lives.
0: Yeah, I think that those are all just, I think part of it is just saying, you know, is it you asking yourself the questions of of whether, you know, you're, you're really are miserable. Like it's like, I think the other thing you kind of have to do is play out. What does the future of this life look like? Like, where does, what is this, if I keep doing what I'm doing, what's it going to look like five years from now?
3: Exactly. Because what's in, what's interesting about this is that, um, you're right it compounds so it's not like if i sit on this problem right now it's going to be the same in 10 years or 5 years or 10 days it's going to be that much worse it multiplies and gets you know more and more devastating to the soul so um i often ask clients the same thing like if you do nothing about this how are things going to be for you in 90 days, a year, five years? What do you imagine your life's going to be like? And when people slow down enough to really think about the true answer to that question, it can help motivate them to, to actually take those risks and do something about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that the opposite kind of plays out as well on the positive side, right? Like you can kind of see that the the upside of it too. It's <laughs> kind of like when you start making changes, yeah, I mean, one year, you know, you may not see anything in the first 60, 90, maybe even the first year uh, like, you know, they talk about 10 year overnight success. And I I think that was one of the the sort of profound realizations I had in my life. Um, when things just sort of came crumbling down, I said, you know what, if I am going to have a very different life in five years, I'm going to have to make drastically different decisions than the ones I've made in the past 10.
3: Yeah. I mean, I remember sort of the, the tipping point for me. Um, it was actually Easter 2006 and I was at the height of my real estate career, and my mom was coming to visit, and she um, she said, "My only request is that while I'm visiting this time, is that you don't work." And I'm like, "Okay, mom, I promise. I'm gonna have my assistant do everything. I'm not. I promise, promise, promise. I will not work." And what ended up happening was that because it was a holiday weekend, um, some out of town clients of mine decided to come into town without telling me. Um, they got to town, sent me a message and said, hey, we're here and we want to put an offer in on the house we looked at two weeks ago. And this wasn't just any house. It was the biggest sale of my real estate career. And so I, I remember cr- sitting at my desk and crying because I had promised my mama that I wouldn't work, and I didn't want to work, but I felt obligated to assist my client, and I also, to be quite honest, wanted that paycheck. <laughs> and so I, so I did. I went to work on Easter weekend, and I was after it was all said and done, I was in the kitchen with my mom, and she said, you know, this just isn't you. Like, you've really just worn yourself out. And and you know, as she's being as loving as she could, but also giving me a swift kick in the ass and saying, Hey, you know, this, this life you're living doesn't seem to be helping you. And, and she said, I'll tell you what, I will keep the kids all day tomorrow and you just do whatever you want to do. And I remember that moment was what changed everything for me because I had no idea what I would go do with myself all day if I wasn't working. I had no hobbies other than shopping or eating. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and that very day, I said, you know what? I can't keep living like this where all I'm doing is working. And if I do have some free time, I'm not even sure what I want to do, mm-hmm. which was crazy town. So I'm with you.
0: Perfect. Well, I think that that makes a perfect setup. So let, let's let's shift gears a little bit and uh, let's start getting into it to some of the, the more tactical things. I mean, how do you tie all of this together into to running you know your business? I mean, for the programs you offer, the services. I mean, I you know I know one of the things that also caught my attention was when Melissa said that you know you work with you know Oprah Magazine and, and you do all mm-hmm. that other stuff. So, like, how did you take all of these things and tie them together into creating like a real revenue generating business?
3: Well, it's been it's been a fun journey and and i really think that building a business is the best personal development anyone can do because you really it takes you through everything of every possible ego issue you could have in building a business i'm sure i'm sure you've experienced this yourself oh yeah um so what I started to do early on in my career um, was I was super interested and passionate about helping other working moms create some kind of, at the time I was using the term life balance, which I hate now. Um, I call it more of a blend now, but to basically create a life they love. And what I started to do was to create packages and programs that that I thought, would have loved to have had. And <clears throat> I started out doing things very old school. You know, I thought that my practice would be, um, kind of like a therapist's practice where I would just sit knee to knee with people and meet with them all day long. That was really all the only business model I was aware of at the time. And so that's what I did at first. And then I started to understand, or I had this craving to reach large groups of people. So I started speaking. And then once I started speaking, I started getting exposed to online marketing. And I started putting together telecourses and retreats. And and basically, I think learning and understanding how to create multiple streams of income in a coaching practice was very key for me to take things to the next level. So I've always been pretty dedicated with being honest about my personal story and sharing with People, my Helen stories, because I have a couple of them. One of them is being a burnt-out realtor, but there are others. And packaging those into digestible bites for people, that has been very successful for me. So... Um, As my business has evolved from being very sort of the knee-to-knee life coach therapist business model um, and moving more online, I've tried to also, you know, my mission now is about sass and fun with personal development. I started to notice that. I started to look around the personal development industry and feel that things were just a little too serious or a little too heavy and that you can deal with the heaviest things in life um, and still have a whole hell of a lot of fun with it. So I started putting together digital programs, um, which include video and downloads and those kinds of things to reach more people. And so now my business is comprised of Um, Some very limited one-on-one stuff, um, in-person group things, online digital programs, and of course writing.
0: Awesome. Well, I think that, that, you know, so so that actually opens up a lot of other questions. I mean, you've talked about, you know, multiple streams of income, you know, doing packages, programs, like, uh, that all kind of are in line with, with sort of a central ethos. And I think, you know, we, we've talked about the, the central ethos idea quite a bit uh, throughout our conversation. What I'm really curious about is is how, you know, somebody can say, okay, you know what, like, I mean, I'm learning this firsthand, you know, after years, I'm like, the multiple streams of income thing makes all the sense in the world to me, because it's not like one thing. I mean, yeah, we have sponsors for our show, and I realize, depending solely on that is just dangerous. Uh, so what I'm curious about is, is as people are looking at sort of their business, their life, how can they audit what they've built
2: mm-hmm.
3: or
0: where these multiple streams of income might lie?
3: Oh, great question. Um, I think that here's something that, that I did in the beginning that was not great. It, and it was that, well, you could say it was great or not great. It depends on how you look at it. But I, I wasn't super clear of, of exactly who my people were and, and what my true mission was. And so I was just throwing things against the wall. I was trying everything, which is good. Um, But my message was kind of disjointed and, and, you know, there were way too many ways people could decide to work with me and so you know what happens there if there are too many choices then people kind of click away or they are are confused about well I don't even know what this girl's about and so I think when people are looking at their lives and they're looking at different streams of income the number one thing I think is to try to narrow it down as much as possible about who who is the most delicious customer to you? Who is the most delicious person that you would love to help? Because there are only so many hours in the day. And then think about, okay, of the things, the Helen backs that you've had, and, and all the different things that interest and excite you the most, um, what problem do you want to help that person with? And so that really narrowed things down a lot for me because I get excited about lots of things, but, but just because I'm excited about it doesn't mean I necessarily need to be doing it and that that needs to be my focus. And so number one, I think, Focus on what excites you and gets you to the point that you can't not talk about it versus what you think will be a revenue creator.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, it's it's so funny because I was thinking, um, you know, uh, just listening to the interview we did with Kate Northrup and she said, you know, what's the thing you can't possibly hold back anymore?
3: Mm hmm. Ooh, I like the way that's phrased. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I was, and you know, it's interesting because it's so counterintuitive. You know, we were talking about sort of mimicry earlier and like looking at our heroes and role models and saying, okay, well, I'm going to do what they've done. Um, And yet, like, I know that people have these things inside of them. Uh, And I can Mm -hmm. tell you from my own personal experience, when we sort of unleash them they're risky, then they definitely might not work. But that's what makes them so much fun. And when they do, you're kind of like, Oh, my God, I, I I love that, you know, you brought up what you're excited about, you know, and our friend Melissa Leon, she said something that really just resonated with me. I was like, that's it. Those are the filters. She said, you know what she said when they because, you know, she and her husband, AJ do a bunch of stuff like, you know, they have their their design agency, but they do all these humanitarian projects, they have a fashion line, like they, they do all this stuff that you're kind of like, Okay, that that just seems really weird. But she said there there are two sort of filters for how they do anything is will we have fun doing this and Mm -hmm. do we care about it? And revenue comes after that, amazingly enough.
2: I love it. Yes, yes, yes.
0: And that is one of the most counterintuitive things I think for people to get their heads around, right? Um, Danielle and I have Danielle Port and I've had this conversation. You guys all have heard this, you know. I, I remember very distinctly. She always says your art can never be about the money. And I, I, you know, in this last conversation, I said, "Well, Danielle, that's easy for you to say, but you know, Susan, you know, you're you, you coach people through dealing with a lot of baggage around stuff like this. What I'm curious about is how do you mentally make the shift? Like, it's one thing for you and I to sit here and to say it." It's another entirely for people to actually believe it and embrace it.
3: Yeah. And you know what? I think the fastest way for people to believe it, if they can't, if they can't have that shift in their mind, because I definitely tell them, you know, listen, I've done it both ways. And the more fun I have, which is so trippy for this former overachiever girl, but the more fun I have, the more I play, the more money I make and and that doesn't mean, though, that I'm sitting under a palm tree all the time eating <laughs> bonbons. <laughs> it means that my work itself is so fun that it feels like play. But, but I encourage them to try it both ways. I've said to coaches, listen, go, okay, go start marketing this package that you think is going to be so profitable but makes you sort of go, oh. And then let's just experiment. And let's try to trot something out here that you're on fire about that you're not sure. And what's interesting is when I have coaches experiment in that way, um, they may have some lukewarm success on, you know, part of, well, let me just say that part of One of the buckets for my work is weight loss, but it's weight loss, not like you're thinking it's anti-diet. So it's all about body love and weight loss is a very profitable niche. There's no question about it. And so a lot of times what happens is coaches will say, well, you do really well with weight loss as a niche. So I'm going to put together a weight loss program and, but they're not, but that's not their passion. You know, and so it's like, okay, go try that out. I think what you're going to find is the way that you energetically promote that work is going to show you that the revenue is going to feel different and your bottom line is going to be different than if it were this other thing over here. That you're about to wet your pants over. I mean, it just can't help but breathe more energy and light into something that you can't stop talking about. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I I can tell you that. I mean, as agonizing as putting together our first in-person event has been, which I jokingly constantly say is like start planning a wedding and starting a religion at the same time. (laughs)
3: Uh, Oh my gosh. I I can
0: tell you, like, I wake up every day excited. I mean, I literally, I was walking up and down the Santa Monica Promenade yesterday looking at, you know, packaging in stores for our welcome kits to say, okay, what can we borrow from this? What can we steal from this? Like, how can I I use these ideas to to create an experience that's absolutely delightful? And and that part to me is actually a lot of fun, even though it's painful at times, but I'm like like i can't stop thinking or talking about it like it's all i you know i wake up every day and i'm like how do i make this so unforgettable for people that they will never you know like one of my friends said so you're not going to do any upselling like no i'm like i want to create an experience like an apple product so that people never question whether they should buy anything from us ever again
3: nice i love it yes 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 that's what i'm talking about it and and you know what for me, I mean, I have a big project I'm working on right now called Life is Delicious TV. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's the same kind of thing. Like, it, it's all, I'm consumed with it. I don't even know for sure, like, what's going to happen with it. But I'm having a hell of a lot of fun. And I'm a betting woman. And I can tell you that the heart and soul that's going into it, is probably going to pan out for me. And even if it doesn't, I'm having an amazing time, which is way better than focusing on some boring sales page that doing business the way everybody else is doing it. So, amen. I'm excited about your event.
0: No doubt. Well, let's do this. So one other question around that, um, since you're you're talking about a TV related project, let's talk about speaking briefly, uh, Mm -hmm. mainly because I know there are a lot of people in our audience who have aspirations to speak. I mean, I, myself, am one of them. I mean, I've gotten opportunities. I mean, how do you build an, you know, how do you build a speaking platform into everything you're doing and, and how do other people do it?
3: Well, you know, I have approached it probably very differently than a lot of the folks that, who, who are very strategic about it, I guess. Um, I like to speak and and have had some training from Gail Larson, who wrote uh, Transformational Speaking. She's amazing. And Gail's work is all about, very in line with how you and I are talking about things, which is just sharing authentically your life story. And so for me... When I was building my business in the very beginning, my first year in business, one of my biggest strategies was to get in front of as many people as possible um, and talk about what it was I was doing. And so I spoke for free for the longest time. Um, anybody that would have me, which I don't necessarily recommend um, because I have some funny stories about talking to these 80-year-old men at a Rotary Club. But I digress. Um I was speaking for free a lot my first year in business and I was talking about things I was super passionate about. And, and what ended up happening as a result was that I was getting clients. I was getting invited to speak other places. Um, I was, I got a newspaper column that way. I got a spot, a weekly life coaching segment on a local, um, Fox network here because of that, um, Just the more people can see you and taste your energy live, the more wonderful doors are going to open for you. And so after that, after sort of getting some experience and gathering testimonials and figuring out within myself how I was on stage and where, what kind of growth I wanted to have happen, then I started putting together Um, what someone would call a signature speech. Um, So I have a couple of different topics that I typically keynote about. And, you know, because I will say this, because I have kids at home and they are teenagers and, you know, I have Ferris Bueller who requires his mama to be keeping an eye on the nest. um, I limit how many speaking gigs a year I will take on. And so it is a, it is a nice stream of income in my business. However, it's not, um, you know, at this point in my life, it will change probably in five years, but at this point in my life, I'm not going after tons and tons of speaking gigs. Um, there however people do come to me and it is a nice revenue stream for me i think what's important for people to do is to start local start speaking as often as you can if it's a goal of yours get a speaking reel together get some testimonials and then start taking a look at where you want to spread your message
0: I, well, I love the, the concept of a signature speech. Uh, to me, that that's probably my favorite thing you said. Because I can tell you, like, I, you know, when I first got opportunities to speak, it was mainly at Blog World talking about, like, blogging and social media and things I've learned. And I very distinctly remember the conversation I had with AJ Leon. He, you know, he and Melissa called me up to say, hey, okay, so you're coming to Misfit to speak. And I, I remember I was in Costa Rica. And I said, you guys don't want me to talk about social media and blogging, do you? Because I really have no interest in talking about that. They're like, no. I was like, thank God. (laughs) Uh, And and that's, you know, I mean, because that seemed like the easy route. It was like, well, yeah, obviously that's what you would talk about. You interview all these online people. So why wouldn't you talk about that? But I noticed something very different when it's kind of that it it kind of brings our conversation full circle when I just said, I'm going to talk about this thing that I'm far more interested in and I'm just going to tell my story and, and, and somewhere in there I will make it useful for other people. Mm -hmm. That opened up the world to me.
3: Yeah. You know, and I think for me as a speaker, um, I have to be really excited about what I'm going to talk about. So when I get those requests, like you're saying, where someone and I do get them, people will contact me and say, oh, we've read. You know, a lot of what you're blogging about with your kids. Could you come talk to our parenting? You know, we're a National Parenting Association thing. I'm like, eh, you know, that's not my thing. Mm -hmm. It's not my gig. I'm not really willing to travel and, and talk on something I'm not on fire about. Even though my kids are a big part of my life, I'm not a parenting expert.
0: Oh, yeah. Somebody asked me once if I would be willing to do a talk on the ROI of podcasting. And I said, first, I'm an Indian person who sucks at math. So that would be a disaster. (laughs) Um, And the truth is, I was like that, despite having run a podcast for four years, I have absolutely no interest in talking to anybody about that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been contacted by real estate associations. Like, would you come and talk about business building stuff? And you know what? I'm very knowledgeable. I totally could. It makes me want to stab my eyeballs out. No, thank you. (laughs) It's not going to happen.
0: Yeah, I think that, that uh, it, it's it's kind of interesting. So, so let, let's do this. I have one final question around this. I mean, you mentioned sort of doing work that makes you want to stab your eyeballs out. And uh, the reason this is hot on my mind is I was talking to a friend yesterday uh, about sort of bridging the gap between work that pays the bills and work that you actually love. And I feel like that, you know, if you're at an early stage of a journey i can tell you i did a lot of things i didn't like doing um sure. but they brought in money and they were i mean bit by bit i let them go and as i let them go other things that make a lot more money filled their space but mm-hmm. how you sort of build a bridge between the work you hate doing and the work you want to be doing so that eventually the canvas is filled with all the things you love
3: yeah great question and i'm super passionate about this too because i'm definitely not a coach who advises people, like, if you hate it, just quit your job. You know, I, I love for people to create what I call a transition plan. And um, and you know what? Pam Slim calls, uh, calls it a side hustle. If you've got to have a side hustle um, while you're saving money and and figuring out what kind of lifestyle you want to sustain, please do it. And please make sure that you have, whatever, six months to a year in the bank um, before you're taking off full time with your the work that you love. And so what I did when I transitioned between real estate and life coaching was I put a plan together and I advise people, take a look at the money coming in, the money going out. Can you adjust your lifestyle? How much realistically do you need to have in savings? And and you'll reach a tipping point, like you were saying, where the canvas is full of what you like. So So what I did was, I decided on a goal for a figure, um, money I wanted to have saved in the bank. And then I got busy on it and, and yes, real estate made me want to stab my eyeballs out. It took me a while to transition. I started, um, taking fewer real estate deals and coaching more at night and on weekends and then slowly, but surely my little nest egg built up. I had enough money and, and could see based on having a business plan At what point I could realistically say, okay, I'm walking out of my real estate office and I'm never going back. But I think the first step is for people to really understand their money situation, turn towards your money, heal any money issues you've got going on so that you're not carrying those into your new business. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with having a a side hustle and doing things that maybe aren't your favorite, it, just consider it an investment in the new company.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that uh, the other way I, I love is what Diana Valentine said. She said, you know, think of your day job as your first angel investor.
3: Oh, that's sweet. I love her too. We have the best people in common.
0: <laughs> well, so one final question, and we'll uh, we'll wrap things up. So Susan, I mean, you've gotten to be, you I mean, you've been around this world for a really long time, and I close all my interviews with this because I, I still can't, for the love of me, think of a new question. Um, so, you know, I mean, you've you've worked on, on something like an Oprah magazine, and and you've you've been close to people who've achieved really amazing things, and you know, I keep seeing sort of this dichotomy in the world that we live in, where. You get people who go out and you know they play the game at like the highest level. I mean, it's like speaking gigs, thriving movements, thriving businesses. And then you get other people with the same resources, same opportunities, um, and they don't quite get there. And I'm wondering what you think it is that distinguishes those two groups of people.
3: I think the biggest distinguishing factor is being willing to risk the ego. So what I see with people who have every advantage and every connection that aren't quite making it is that their heart is not in it and and their heart isn't in it because of ego.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, that actually is a really good point. Uh, if your heart's not in something, it's, it's pretty hard to keep going.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you've got, because I had no connections <laughs> and I had all the passion in the world And, and I feel like that is really what has propelled my business more than anything is just an unshakable belief that people can have what they want and I can help them get it or turn them onto some material that can help them get it.
0: You know, I, I love that you brought that up. Uh, and I, I'm going to finish up by, by talk, mentioning, you know, uh, this off camera show because it's just my, my latest inspiration. Uh, it was, I think again, it was like Robert Downey Jr. Uh, when they were asking him about sort of you know, do, uh, most of these creatives, like no mm-hmm. plan B. And I, I thought, I'm like, wow, no plan B. What a crazy sort of approach to all of this. But I think mm-hmm. that when you're, you're of that mindset, um, that, okay, you know what? Like, I don't have a plan B. I just have another plan A, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. totally different. Like I, you know, in my mind, it's like, I'm going to start something else that I would enjoy doing. And, and I think about grit. And, you know, sort of this willingness to stay in something so far past when the average person quits. And I think the only way you get that is if you're enthusiastic about what you're doing.
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it that's, that's it. The heart and the passion and the enthusiasm is, the, to me, the best ingredients for a business plan making it.
0: I love it. Well, I think that makes a perfect and poetic way to sum up our conversation. Susan, uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and uh, share some of your insights with our listeners. This has been really eye-opening, and I think it's uh, it's a great way to be uh, kicking off uh, ideas for the new year.
3: Thank you so much. I am honored and had a blast. Thanks for listening in on another candid conversation
1: at The Unmistakable Creative. Embrace your inner misfit. Express your creative voice. And remember, the goal isn't to live forever, but to create something that will.
2: Hold up. What was that?